Dare to be Human is a production of Cop It. In this podcast, we explore the ways applied improvisation shows up in the wild. If you've ever wondered about how improv could be used in your world, check us out at copit.com. Okay, beautiful. So this is the start. Um, okay, so we just uh, start. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, Hi, Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is perfect because uh, our our amazing guest on this episode is. Uh, Shannon Polly, who shares uh, her Dare to Be Human story about uh, the entertainment value of failure. So I think that was a really, a really great way to kick things off. Yeah, Shannon Polly is great. She was one of the first hundred people in the universe to get a degree in positive psychology. Yes, and, and she's, she's good. Let's just talk over each other the entire time. Let's we could do it. Why simultaneously not? talk. You tell us what comes next after she's one of the first hundred people to get a degree in positive psychology. Well, I my thought is that she's put it to very good use as a facilitator, coach, speaker, and author uh, whose expertise is in how the science of positive psychology can create flourishing individuals and organizations. Yes, and she's going to distinguish positive psychology from like fluffy positive affirmations that mean we should be happy all the time that was my one of the things I really appreciated about our conversation yes she also is the editor of a book called character strengths matter yes and she will also help us determine what strengths are and what they are not Uh, similar to positive and negative it is not necessarily what we believe it to be I'm gonna live a big pause uh, silent pause now so you can hear all the background noise in my background that's another thing we love Laura. she also is the editor of a book called character strengths matter and she is going to distinguish both there's a lot of words mm-hmm. that we have already used that can be confusing and defined in very messy ways so we're gonna have some wonderful conversations with her about even defining those terms and what they are and what they're not beautiful and we will also dive into. That's it. <laughs> That's all we're talking about. That's all we're talking about. I'm yeah. struggling because I feel like we got to a good place and I was like, it's salvageable. It's savable if we just cut that part and then say. So stick around and here's Shannon Polly. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Usually we start by asking our guests if they have a dare to be human story they want to share with us and then just go from there. Sure. 
Okay, let's dive right in. <laughs> yeah. I At the beginning of the pandemic, I was feeling antsy and I couldn't travel. And my kids were like, you're a terrible teacher. And they weren't doing any homework. And I'm used to traveling like once a week. So I was like, I have to find an outlet. And I found this charity auction that was donating money to the ACLU in California to be a guest on Paula Poundstone's podcast. And I was like, oh my gosh, I get to donate to charity and be on her podcast and I'll market it and I love her and it'd be great. And so um, the producer interviews me and says, you know, they're going to do an episode where they talk to like a fan of Paula Poundstone. And she said, no, no, they changed their mind. They're going to do um, an interview and pretend that you're interviewing to be the assistant on the Paula Poundstone podcast. And I was like, okay. She's like, oh, and they're really great. And they have, you know, a set of questions and they're really nice and lovely and wonderful and everything. And I was like, okay, great. So it's Paula Poundstone and this guy. Adam yes. Silber. You know him? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. He's in an improv company with me, Freestyle Repertory Theater in New York. So I hope this isn't a story about how awful he is. No, he's not awful. Okay, good. <laughs> he is not awful. So they ha- they start off the um, interview and they're like, hi, blah, blah, blah. And they said, so this is an interview to, you know, see if you want to be our very low paid assistant. And I was like, okay, great. And they said, so what's bigger, Greenland or Australia? And I was like, <laughs> I, no I was like, um, I hope I'm not supposed to get this right because I don't know. And uh, whatever I said was wrong. And uh, <laughs> every, it was like my brain shut down. Every every morsel of any intelligence I had went out the window, and I I got every question wrong. And she was trying not to make me look stupid. <laughs> So she pretended she didn't know the answer to the question. And then Adam was like, what do you mean you don't know the answer to the question? You're doing the interview, Paula. Um, so, so they made it funny. But for me, it was like every subsequent question was like, oh, my God, I don't know this. One. I don't know that one. And at the end, I tried to make some joke because, of course, I felt this pressure to be funny. And I said, so what do I get paid? And they were like, get paid. <laughs> So in the end, I think, you know, I think they thought it was funny. But for me, I felt like total egg on my face. Oh, <laughs> no. I had failed gloriously. But I left that and I was like, well, this is a really good learning experience about being human of both the improv of like trying to be funny is always going to fail. But um, because it's, the, it's their game, right? And I yeah. have to sort of be let in on the game and just, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe I need to find another angle for diversion and excitement. Oh no. But, but the money went to a good cause and it was uh it was a little dose of of a humble pie, but uh <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. That's a great dare to be human story. Thank you for that. <laughs> and I feel like there's a way that just sharing it here we're going to reclaim that moment for you, right? So That's right. Yeah. Well, part of it was I I did actually get to reflect on it. I don't I'm not a huge blogger, but I, I did write a newsletter and I I decided to reclaim it in leveraging self-compassion. So I just took a workshop with Kristen Neff, who's the, not the foremost, well, she is the foremost researcher. She didn't originate it, but her idea of self-compassion is that it's about presence, self-kindness, and common humanity. And um, in that moment, I was like, this is great common humanity, you know, <laughs> and, and, and a good practice, because I think a lot of my clients throughout the pandemic have been holding themselves up to a crazy standard of 
I'm going to have to do everything I did before and take care of my kids and teach them school and volunteer and do all this stuff. And, you know, and then they have a nervous breakdown. So, um, <laughs> so it's good to just have moments of being like, yep, then it is. Gotta let it go. There's so many places we could go with this story. What, one of the first ones that comes to mind is from the place of, as an improviser, having a, like a, audience volunteer on stage and how do we you know one of the core principles of improv is make your partner look good right <laughs> and we've had formats where we have audience members up on stage we've even had formats where we do a little quiz game we had a show called 10 north tonight a tonight show type envelope where we improvised inside of it and we had audience members come up on stage and we asked them quiz questions and it's very interesting to think about how do you make an audience member look good when you don't know if they're going what they're going to know and what's going to be easier what's going to be hard and i think we spent a lot of time making sure they would get the questions right because the point wasn't that it was a quiz game right the point was that we had to play a game of it being a quiz where we're in on it like you just said i have to be in on the game right it makes me think about you know just sort of in the life of daring to be human like when you're in a moment like what is the game we're playing at any given moment and how are we letting our partners in any given scene in on the game yeah and do we assume that they know what the game is when we know what the game is as opposed to you know, we think we think they know what the game is. And then we get in it. And we're like, ooh, they don't know the game. <laughs> Recently, my daughter and I, we did a virtual Seder this year for the second year in a row. And uh, my daughter like briefed me before we got there. And she was like, okay. Um, she's in the middle of, you know, college decision season. And these are her cousins that she's very, that are important to her. And she wants to impress. And she was like, okay, here's how it's going to go. So if they say this, you say this, or I'm going to say this, and you can't, you can't contradict me here, but, oh, make sure you say that thing that you just said with those other people there. And it was a very good way of like making sure we were clear on the game. Yeah, I, I think the game and also my kid's a little younger than yours. So I have to do the like directing the scene more than the game of like, okay, so when you came in and screamed at me and asked me to do something for you, that game doesn't work for me. Let's do that again. Yeah. <laughs> you say it in a nice way, and then I'll say yes. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. That, we've been doing a lot of that in trying to process our emotions over the last year. So The other thing I thought about was you were saying, you know, they felt like it went well. And I mean, there's lots of entertainment value and failure, right? <laughs> yeah. What's the expectation? Like, when is it okay for us to not know without feeling ashamed? Yeah. I mean, because the whole premise was the majority of the questions were completely ridiculous. Like, what's the introduction to such and so book? Like, I wasn't supposed to know that. Right. But you're right. It gets back to the knowing and not knowing. And if we're not willing to admit we don't know, then we're playing a game that goes very wrong and then it's really hard to get back. So recently I was talking to the new VP in leadership development of a company that I've worked for for a long time, but she's new. And she asked me if I knew a book that her boss was doing a workshop on. And my, you know, normal 
instinct, like what I learned in college would have been to BS and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been a long time since I've read it or, you know, that the, the actor thing of like pretend you know everything because you'll figure it out and then they'll cast you and you'll learn how to roller skate or whatever. And I just said, no, I don't know that book. And she was like, oh, okay, well, that's a really good book. And then later on in the conversation, there was a workshop that I've been doing for years and she should have known what what it was about and she said so tell me what that workshop is about and I don't know that strength survey and so she was being candid with me and secretly I was kind of like you should really know this <laughs> she probably thought that I should have known the book she mentioned if I was you know up on my reading in this area but I thought it was great because at least we were candid and we started from the same place because if we both been BSing each other then there wouldn't have been any value to the conversation which feels like it's at the heart of daring to be human. I mean, that's sort of the core of, I think, what we're trying to give ourselves and our fellow creatures, right, is that kind of grace yeah. to say what's, what's real, which then, of course, brings me to, I think, one of the things we have to talk about with you, which is this whole world of positive psychology and appreciative inquiry. And so maybe let's dive in, in a sort of formal way to that whole world of yours. Can we be sort of formal for a minute and have you define positive psychology? I feel like it's one of those fields or areas of study that gets really maligned or misunderstood a lot. Mm, yeah, thank you for that. It is the scientific study of what makes life worth living. So what is good, what is true, it was started in late, the late 1990s. Now, it's been around since the days of Aristotle, but the term was coined by Marty Seligman, who was the head of the American Psychological Association. And he said, you know, it's just as valid to study what people do well as it is to study what's wrong with them. And since World War II, all of psychology had been focused on depression and anxiety and schizophrenia. And we've gotten very good at diagnosing and treating those things. But the flip side is just as valid. So when he looked at all the peer-reviewed research, it was like, you know, 5% was focused on joy and gratitude, and the rest was on dysfunction. And so he is very good at raising money, and he was able to get more funding dollars, so now the research started to shift, and now there are thousands and thousands of pieces of research on gratitude and resilience and strengths, and I've gotten to teach it to the army, and you know, I think it's become more commonplace. I think where it becomes maligned is, and he actually says this, he said, if I had it to do over, I would not have called it positive psychology because people will say, oh, you mean opposed to negative psychology? <laughs> and he said, I would have called it well-being psychology because then it wouldn't have become this, you know, like positive thinking or think and grow rich or the secret, which, you know, Tony Robbins, you just think about it and walk across the coals. And this is, you know, it's research peer reviewed, you know, placebo controlled trials of what actually works. Now there are limitations as there always are, but it's actually, you know, a, a real, real scientific study. So I think that's, that's where, it, when it gets reduced to happyology, that's, that's where it gets maligned. Yeah. And positive thinking is right. not what we're talking about. No. Completely. No. I mean, there there are some research studies about positive visualization. Athletes do this, imagining the ball going in the hole and like where you look, you will end up going if you're on a horse or if you're, you know, in a jet ski. Um, 
And there is some re interesting research, speaking of um, self-compassion, is that when we talk to ourselves in the third person, we're actually more successful in comforting ourselves. So if we say, hey, Shannon, you know, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. You weren't supposed to get the answers right anyway. It's, it's a comedy podcast. Like, you know, right. get over yourself. Rather than, I'm okay. I'll, I'll be fine. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. It's not a big deal. So something about the third person. So that's, that's where the nuances of like positive thinking come into play. But yes, the overall, like, if I just imagine myself better, I will be is, is not, not true. So how did you come to this? Tell us a little bit about your story of coming to it and how you use it. And all that. Yeah, well, I, you know, I majored in theater at Yale and went to drama school in London and had, you know, a decade of treading the boards as it were doing lots of regional theater and off-Broadway and I loved it and I felt like there was something missing for me that I wanted to have a bigger impact. It felt a little narcissistic to be sending out 500 headshots of me <laughs> and uh, and so I thought well you know maybe I don't know what I should do and I went to the Actors Fund which I adore them forever for this and they had a career counselor and they had a a course called Are You On The Fence With Life In The Industry? And so um, I talked to them and I said, well, I don't know that I'm suited for anything else. And they said, well, of course you are, you have strengths. So we looked at our strengths and values. And uh, I took this test that gave me like three professions other than acting. And the first one was to be a news anchor. <laughs> <laughs> My husband was like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> that. Um, but number three was corporate trainer. And I was like, huh, I've kind of always wanted to do that. And at the very same time, uh, a colleague of mine who runs a theater in North Carolina, her mother runs a training company. And she was like, you know, we're going to do this program on executive presence for women at a professional services firm. Would, would you like to help me out? And I was like, oh, you know, the sky opens up. Um, and it took a little while to transition, but I thought, wow, I need to go back to school. Maybe I should get a PhD in psychology. And so I did this study in New York, the acculturation of Hispanic children, so that I could learn and do like a project before I applied to the some crazy seven-year PhD program. So I learned that um, optimism uh, is a little, I've overused that strength a bit in estimating my Spanish speaking skills. <laughs> and my very first day I come in and there's this four-year-old whom I don't know has, you know, some behavioral issues as well as speaking four-year-old Spanish. And it's supposed to be like an hour and a half assessment. And I'm supposed to hold my hands in a certain way and ask the question the same way so that it's valid. And we get through like 20 minutes before the kid is just running around the room. And I was like, okay, so maybe a PhD. It's not in my future. Uh -huh. But I also realized that I really like to work with high functioning people and help them perform better. So I went to a, a meetup in New York and they said, well, have you heard about this program at Penn? I said, no. And I looked it up and I thought, oh, this is perfect, right? It's research, it's science, but it's also what people do well. And I was hooked. You know, I think that what we talk a lot about here is the idea of expanding our awareness and expanding our performance range. Right? That's what we talk to our clients about. And that's what we examine here. And what I'm so interested in, in terms of your work is when we talk about that, it can sound like fix yourself, 
Mm. or do things you're not good at, right? Expanding your performance range is, well, I, I'm good at this and now I have to do these things that I'm not good at, but it doesn't have to mean that at all. We're working with senior partners in a big global consulting firm right now. And these are people who by definition are very, very successful. They are high performers. So when we come to work with them, a lot of what we're doing is saying, let's get better at seeing what you are unconsciously competent at Mm-hmm. And how can you be more conscious of what you're doing really well in one given circumstance and pull that into other circumstances so that you can be consciously competent when the environment changes or when you're talking to a different kind of person or when you're trying to do a different activity because now it's COVID and you're on a computer or you're talking to a different type of client or the answers that you used to have aren't legitimate anymore. And it feels like what you're talking about in terms of you're not broken. This is my words, right? But how do you just become more working from strengths is a word I just heard you use. Absolutely. And I try to do this with my coaching clients as well as, you know, when is a time in the past you've been successful doing that? Because if we're, if we're hardwired with a negativity bias and we're looking at what's wrong, that's what we're going to see. But if we start looking for what's right, then that's what we see. And what I heard you say, which is, in a different way, the way I phrase it is, how do you use a top strength to pull up a bottom strength? So say mm. it's something you haven't flexed in a while, how do I use my perseverance to pull up my self-regulation? So I have perseverance as a top strength, self-regulation, not so much. You know, when we were on-site at clients, like the donut tray, I never met a never met a stranger on the donut <laughs> tray. <laughs> But, but this last month I have friends who are like, let's do a walking challenge. And so every day I text them and I got to walk in before this phone call, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. So that perseverance, I just said, I know I'm going to, I'm going to do this because I've said I'm going to do it. Whereas normally that wouldn't be my strength. So I think that too often the let's build what you're not good at can look like, what do you mean? I'm supposed to... (laughs) you know, focus on the thing that I'm terrible at and we're not going to get gains there. Because I think sometimes people think that, yeah, positive psychology and that principle of improv are in contradiction, but I don't think they are. I think this idea of strengths is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about how you define strengths and how you use them? Yeah. So strengths are there, you know, there are different surveys, the the VIA, the VIA character strength surveys, I'd say more intrinsic and people who know strengths finder is more extrinsic. That's more work focused. And the strengths finder defines them as talents. So they have a little distinction there, but strengths are inherent to you. No one has to ask you to use them. You feel energized when you use them, you feel authentic. And frequently when, you know, I'll be coaching someone, they'll say, oh, well, but that's just what I do. And it's like the fish in water, you know, they don't know they're in water. So some of it is, again, like bringing the unconscious competence that not everybody does that. And that you have all of the strengths, you just might not have them as often. So there's trait strengths and phasic strengths. So trait strengths are, they're intrinsic to who you are. And phasic strengths are, you use them when you need to use them. So I don't know if you remember the story in New York I don't know, five or 10 years ago, but there was this guy on the subway who started having an epileptic seizure and he fell on the tracks as a train was coming. And another guy who was on the platform with his two little girls 
jumped down and laid on top of him while the train was coming and was telling, while he was having this fit saying, I don't know you, you don't know me, but my daughter's up there, so I'm just gonna try to help you out. And the clearance of the train on the track was 21 inches and the clearance of these two guys' heads were 21 and a half. And the guy having the epileptic fit was white and the guy who saved him was black, who was a former military army. And they interviewed him and he just said, yeah, what, what, what a way to start a year, you know, save a life. And I was like, yeah, yeah that's the way I start my year. Um, and that's sort of a phasic strength of bravery. Like he just, it was in the moment and he just did it because that's just who he was. But maybe every day isn't like, that's what he expresses. But when the, when the situation calls for it, we can. But it also calls into account like strength's blindness. Like he just didn't even, he was like, yeah, I did it, you know. So there are things that energize you. And, and I think the challenge is when you're, you're, you can also have learned behaviors that are not strengths. So I could do my taxes if I had to, but it's really depleting my energy. I hate it. And that's why I hire somebody else to do it. But I still have to gather all my receipts and I hate that part and it takes me forever and I procrastinate. So ultimately it's the things that energize you. And there's a way that the premise is as a coach or a trainer or a person for ourselves, that if we can identify our strengths and work from our strengths to develop those and or to use a strength to develop a lesser strength, we're going to be more successful than if we focus on our non-strengths and try to fix those or work on those directly. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So Marty Seligman says, the only way to achieve greatness is to work from your strengths. Working on your weaknesses will only prevent failure. You know, when I started out as a facilitator, I was terrible designing PowerPoint. I didn't know what to do. It was boring. It was ugly. And I was going into these, you know, multinational corporations and I was like, well, I'm going to have to either learn it or hire somebody because this will lead to failure. So I got proficient at it. Like I can add an animation, but I'm not, I'm never going to be like some amazing PowerPoint designer because that's not, you know, that's just not my strength. So one short example. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great example. I'm just, I'm, I'm listening. And I, I, the thing that's striking me is I like that everything is a strength and it's just, there's a, you have higher or lower strengths, like <laughs> that it's just still on the spectrum of strength. Cause I think we don't think of it that way. We look at it as, you know, this is something that I'm good at or is a strength. And then this is a weakness. And this is something which has like that negative connotation. I like that frame of looking at it where it's not this kind of negative thing. Yeah. And you can build up the lesser ones if you want to work on them. When I was doing my map program at Penn, of course, we're all studying this, we're studying gratitude. And, you know, this is pre-COVID, so we were all lovey-dovey and like we were there every three weeks and we we're all hugging each other. And so love popped up into my top five, which is not surprising. Then I had two kids. <laughs> <laughs> I I still have love, but the the resilience was tested a bit, especially late at night. I used to joke that there's no positive psychology intervention that will trump sleep deprivation. So, but I definitely definitely a lot of those tools helped in the challenging times, and they certainly helped in the last year. Especially in the last year, one of the things that's come up a lot in things that I've read is a sort of I think this sort of loops back to the positive psychology or positive. Uh, attribution to this idea of positive psychology, 
something that's come up in the last year a lot is a sort of push against over-rotating on positive things. So like Susan David talks a lot about the power of negative emotions and not pushing them away or but yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that are. How how does what we're talking about right now relate to being willing to embrace our sort of negative experiences or our negative feelings? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it gets back to where positive psychology gets misinterpreted. So Barbara Fredrickson, who's out of UNC Chapel Hill, is one of the premier researchers of positive emotion. But as she acknowledges that denying the negative is also extremely unhealthy that if you try to pretend you are happy you will actually be less happy because it's not authentic so it is kind of a fine line and throughout this last year and the challenges that people have experienced i think you have to acknowledge how difficult things have been and i think that's where self-compassion comes in and kristen neff's work and the thing that I find with some of my clients is they're like, well, but nobody's died. I didn't get COVID. Like, I shouldn't complain. And I like to say, you know, suffering's not comparable. It's not like you can say, well, I'm not, you know, homeless, so I shouldn't be upset. It's okay to acknowledge, like, this is, this is suffering for you. At the same time, because our brains are hardwired to look at what's wrong, that there is a certain balance. There's been debate about an actual mathematical ratio, but that if you can practice focusing your attention on what's working, that then you can sort of shift that balance. So this last week, our beloved hamster suddenly died and he was peanut and he used to sit in my scarf while I would type. And he was like my emotional support animal. He would literally, he would like eat lunch while I was eating lunch. He'd like chew on a little leaf. He was so adorable and I was really, I was really sad when he died and we had to go to the vet and decide to have them put him down and, you know, my daughter's weeping and the other one's like, I'll give all my money if you can save Peanut. And so this weekend I was like, why am I sad? I don't know why I'm sad. I shouldn't be sad. I'm an adult. Why should I care about a hamster? And then I was like, no, I'm really sad. Um, so I was like, okay, uh, what, what strategies do I know? I know I need to get outside. I need some vitamin D. I need some exercise. I need to be around other humans and to have some conversation. So, you know, we had a play date and I was like, all right, those strategies worked and I feel better. <laughs> so, so I think it is both acknowledging like all your feelings are valid and it's what you resist persists, right? Like I'm sure Kat, when you coach people on presentation skills and they're anxious, them trying not to be anxious makes them more anxious. As actors, we know like, yeah, we're gonna be anxious. That's just fuel reframing how you see it. Right, there's this idea that I have to get over my anxiety so that I can be good at my presentation. Right. And part of it's just like, you don't. You can be anxious the whole time and do a great job. Exactly. And there are ways we can harness that energy or focus that energy so that it's going to be more useful to you or not. Exactly. I remember early on when I was a beginning improviser and it, I would just get so, I still get nervous always before a show always. And, but before it was kind of, you know, it was at the point where it was very like physically distressing and I would just really, really get in my head about it. And I got a good tip of like, like you have this anxiety monster and it's, it's kind of, you're trying to hide it and you're like sidestepping to cover it up. But what you need to do is like put your arm around it and be like, Hey, here's my anxiety monster. He's going to be with us the whole time. 
so here we go. <laughs> just know that it's going to be with you the whole time. And just the thing about visualizing that, and, and I'm thinking it kind of is, is tying to that sort of, you know, talking to yourself in the third person and kind of creating this other thing, like talking to the anxiety and being like, you are, I see you, you're here, and we're going to get through this together <laughs> you're making it you're, you're making it your comrade instead of this thing to push against yeah exactly and actually there's some data that show that when you tell a speaker that no one can tell they're nervous they become less nervous so if you unless you have like the paper or the flop sweat you know which i've seen before um <clears throat> that they actually become less nervous which i think is kind of nice that makes sense to me. So many people who report being nervous to me, what they're ner most nervous about is that people can see them being nervous, is that they look nervous. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why in most of our programs, we have people record themselves, which used to be such a big deal, right? You used to have video cameras and things <laughs> and they'd have to go out of the room and then come back. Yeah. Yeah. And now they, everybody has a phone, right? So they just record themselves. Well, now they don't even have to do a phone right now. <laughs> Right. We have a year of seeing ourselves yeah. talking to each other. So that's amazing data. But point is, we would have people record themselves. And of course, everybody hates the idea of that. What we discovered was the greatest benefit of that is that things look so much better than we think they do. You know, the idea people think is, oh, I'm going to watch myself and be able to assess all the little things I'm doing wrong so that I can improve them. Mm. And I suppose there's some of that, but really what it is, is that we would give people a redirection and they would see it and it would feel weird. And they'd be like, oh, but it looks good from the outside. Yeah. yeah. Or they'd say, think I felt terrible, but you can't tell from the outside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, you told me to speak louder and it feels like I'm yelling, like I'm my, my mother. And then they watch it and they're like, oh, I sounded powerful and strong. And yeah. And normal. I didn't sound normal. like I was freaking. Yeah. Yeah. I think the one distinction I would make on the well-being front, especially with Zoom, is that there's also some research coming out that looking at ourselves daily is what's causing the stress. So if we can hide our self-view, there's less of Zoom fatigue and there's so much fatigue overall <laughs> this last year. I feel like every little bit helps. So help me with this. Here's a, here's a confession. Here's my dare to be human moment. I'm daring to be human. This feels dangerous. I am aware that I don't mind how I look on Zoom. I feel like I look better on Zoom than I look in a mirror. I look a thousand times better on Zoom than I look when I'm videotaped or that, you know, when I'm walking by a mirror or any time of it, right? Because it's just this part. I'm better from the front. I don't have to see my profile. I don't have to see my body. I don't have to like, you know, it's sort of, it's nice to my face. I can put on my, so I don't mind seeing myself on Zoom, right? Like when I see myself, I'm like, oh, I look good. It's like my, <laughs> my, you know, it's a good hair day. Good. Well, I really think it's had a huge impact on my experience of the year. Interesting. Huh. And that if also. I didn't feel like that, right, if I could hide myself, but I'd still know what I think I look like. And that if I felt like I didn't like what I looked like, I would have had a really, really much harder time mm. this year. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think some of it, I think some of it is the perception of how you look and some of it is just the attention being distracted. So in positive psych, we call it flow. Me high cheeks at me high is the researcher of flow. Right. And the problem with email and meetings and the pings and whatever we get is that we never actually get into flow. And I think that this flipping up and down between looking at you on the camera and looking at myself or looking at the picture means that we're always, you know, switching. And I think that is what is also exhausting about the camera. And um, I remember doing all of the positive psychology tools and I was like, what is wrong with me? I still, it's not working. And then I realized, you know, I was getting distracted every every 20 minutes. And then once you get distracted, it takes 20 minutes to refocus on the task. So then you're 40 minutes behind where you would have been. And uh, I know for some of our clients, that's impossible, right? They have back-to-back -back meetings all day long, but can they take a walking meeting? Can they end five minutes early? Can they have a standing meeting? You know, all sorts of things to try to, to try to angle for the, the well-being of the fact that people are actually working more hours now that we're virtual and they have less breaks and there's no excuse. People are like, I know where you are. You, know, you can't say, oh, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm at the beach with my family. I remember there was one day when I, at the end of the day, I'd done some deliveries and I thought that was all right. Those were okay, but I didn't feel great about them. Mm. And I was like, what happened? And then I realized, oh, I did four programs in a day. And in a normal day, I would have flown to London in the morning uh -huh. or I would have flown a week ago to London yeah. and done a day long program in London. And then yeah. I would have flown home yeah. and done a program in New York. And then I would have flown to California and done that third one in California. Yeah. Right? And then I would have flown to wherever, Chicago, wherever it was. But in this day, I had done four programs with clients based in those four cities in one day starting at 5 a.m. and going to whatever time at night yeah, because I could, Yep. but my brain couldn't do that. Like there was no, you know, I would have had two days in between each of those to say, okay, like now what's the next one? Let me actually yeah. read the agenda. Right. Yeah. That happened to me too. I had five different topics and five different clients every day in a week. Yeah. And I was like, I can't even prepare. And of course they're like, let's have the meeting to prepare for this. I'm like, I'm not in that. I'm doing this program now yeah. in my head. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard. Fascinating. So the other thing that we talk about sometimes, we've talked about it a little here, is how all of this plays out as parents. <laughs> <laughs> so especially as those things get mashed up together in our lives this year oh the mashup yes so the lack how of transition how has all of this awareness helped or not helped with your girls you know I think that some of it's about transition time and creating a ritual to force that transition I have a colleague who focuses on ritual and we did a workshop together on ritual and play and I was talking to her and I said you know I have a really hard time transitioning from like the end of the workday to my kids Whereas with COVID, it's like the middle of the workday, you know, here's the other hamster in the middle of the call. <laughs> um, and she said, you know, as an actor, she had worked with someone who's a basketball player. And at the end of his day, she had him take, wad up a piece of paper and throw it in a the trash can and be like, what's going on? And that was the end of his day. Yeah. And for me, I said, well, as in the theater, you take a bath. 
<laughs> she said, well, yeah. what if you did that? And I burst out laughing and I was like, the thought of me in my own office, like taking a bow. And she's like, but why not? Why is this so silly? Yeah. No one can see you. And I was like, yeah, why not? So I, I took a deep bow. I was like, oh, it felt really good, you know, just to <laughs> yeah. acknowledge like the day went well and then to be able to transition. So I don't do that every day, but I think that thinking of that as a transition and also acknowledging that my husband needs transition time. He needs his little cave. So when I'm like, I want to like get them to bed and, you know, I'm like dinner's at 530 and he's like, you know, I can tell he's disoriented and that leads to him not having fully left. So he's on his phone at the table. And I'm like, that's terrible. So yeah. we sort of talked about transitions. And then also, I think one of the benefits of this has been the lack of guilt, because I'm not leaving them. I'm not getting on a plane every three weeks, right? you know, because their behavior totally shifted when they, not only was I not getting on a plane, but they knew I wasn't leaving. And Suddenly, I was the best mom in the world. I was like, wow, I don't think I changed that much. But um, it reminds me of the Winnie the Pooh, Winnie and, and um, Piglet quote. And Piglet hugs on Pooh. And Pooh says, what? And Piglet says, I just wanted to be sure of you. Oh. And that's what I think. I think the kids, especially in this crazy time, they just need someone to be sure of to know that you're there. Which isn't to say there haven't been, you know, nightmarish tantrums and emotions and my younger daughter saying, you know, my, the teacher's leaving her, she's having twins and I can't even hug her. Oh, and it just breaks my heart because she's such a, she's such a hugger. So, you know, I think that the improv of being present in the moment and just acknowledging, acknowledging the emotion of like, this is where we are. I would like to not be here, and so would she, but um, she doesn't have the tools that I have, and her prefrontal cortex is not as developed. <laughs> so, so yeah. I think it's um, sort of a daily check-in of like where we are and what are the strategies we need today, not like what's going to last us for months and months and months. Yeah, I've been obsessed since the beginning of this event, this new phase of life, with what is not different from how it's always been. And what you just said feels like it has always been true that we can only be in the present moment and affect the present moment, right? We can't change the past. We can't actually affect the future except by what we do in the present moment. You know, that's a lifelong task, right? To be present in the moment and accept the moment and make choices respond in the moment. Exactly. And I realized that my way of getting excitement or recreating that actor's life was, I loved getting on the plane. I didn't like leaving my kids, but I loved the excitement. And when I realized I couldn't, I was like, ooh, I'm going to have to try a different tack. And so I took um, a friend of mine, is a, he studied in Burma, he studied meditation, and he had an online meditation retreat. And I was like, if I can't go out, I can't escape. I'm going to have to go in and go deeper and try to work on things that way. And it was really revelatory that weekend, just the few pockets of time scheduled that I carved out, just trying to work on being more present and that those strategies that I always had in the back of my mind, but that it takes practice and that they actually work. So that was exciting. 
Beautiful. Something that I know myself and some of my family members have done during this whole time to help be more present is to sort of have these routines and these rituals and kind of knowing that you have this scaffolding, even if the day changes, it feels easier to kind of pivot if you know, like, this is our routine and I'm simultaneously present in the moment and able to kind of like tack back and forth. I think it's just, it just made me think it, it relates back to the sort of like being sure of something gives you the sort of safety to be able to flex into the being present, which might feel a little more risky or scary or not as natural. Sounds like your family might have self-regulation as a top strength in order to create those those rituals and structures, which is good. It is my 24th strength of 24. So, <laughs> so they've often said that uh, self-regulation in the parent is correlated to well-being in the kids. And I was like, uh-oh, my kids are screwed. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's little, terrible. I do not have that as a top strength. But I try. I try. I told, I told my husband, yeah. I was like, but I'm flexible. <laughs> that's my thing. Oh, that's very sad to hear. My poor no. And to be, to be fair, we, it is just me and my husband right now as family. So we have a little bit of an easier time <laughs> creating and sticking to a routine because it's just the two of us with our, our big old prefrontal cortexes fully developed. So, My daughter, who is a senior in high school, has been very excited to watch the YouTube videos from the parents who have 26 adopted children and she's an only child. And I think what she really likes about it are the routines. <laughs> you know, they like have, they have lots of systems in place to make the family work with 26 children. And I imagine when she is a mom, she will be amazing at that right? She's so disciplined with herself. She's so good at organizing. She's a great project manager. She loves teaching class and choreography and all of these things that are about that, about putting systems in place to organize. She's the editor-in-chief of her paper at school. And I, I'm sure she gets that from having a mother who has not been good at that for her. <laughs> You know, we we give them what they need. <laughs> they, they survived. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Shannon, is there anything that we have not talked to you about? The only thing I would mention is my sort of pet, I guess not a pet project, but speaking of strengths, the professor who created the survey, Chris Peterson, when he passed away a couple of years ago, collectively a group of us, put together a book in his honor called Character Strengths Matter, and all the proceeds go to a scholarship in his name at the University of Pennsylvania. And this year, normally we give out one a year, and this year we were able to give out three, which wow. is really exciting. So we've, yeah, we've raised a lot of money for people to study and spread the good news. There was a guy who was in charge of the police force in northern India and in Chennai, he got to come and he you know, wouldn't have been able to fly across the world. So it's just a little plug for that. Fantastic. We will make sure that we link it in the show notes and okay. also where they can find you if anybody is looking for a coach or someone to do programs on this kind of stuff. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I love the name. I love the premise. I think there's a movement to be more human and then we can all allow ourselves to be more compassionate with ourselves and more human. So, amen.
think a takeaway that I took away from this interview was uh, the the Elmo on Sesame Street. Mm. I think is not just a happy uh, individual and character just because. I think because Elmo always speaks in the third person that they're already so trained that when they're speaking to themselves self-compassionately, they're already using the third person. They don't need to change how that is. And I think that reinforces why they're so happy. That's beautiful. That, that was a really interesting little note, wasn't it? It makes me think of uh, my very, very fledgling mindfulness practice and the idea of uh, separating from your, so rather than saying I'm happy, saying there is happiness, which is even mm. one step removed and just being able to have that little view of ourselves as nice, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, speaking of people who are not ourselves or in the third person, <laughs> it was fun to hear Shannon talk about uh, the Paula Poundstone podcast. And we have a friend, Adam Felber, who is her compatriot on that podcast and was in that story. So if someone was on our podcast telling a story about someone else that we know. And uh, I would just love to hear Adam's side of that story. If he remembers, we sort of gave him a little bit of a hard time, Miss Paula and Mr. Adam in, in supporting Shannon in this story. And so I would just love Adam, this is our call out to you come be on the Dare to be Human podcast. I know he's doing some other new podcasts too, like the Workplace Comedy podcast with Emmy Laybourne, which is which you should all go watch and listen to. No, don't watch it. Probably it would just be like a little ticker of time yeah. going across your screen, but you should definitely listen to it. Anyway, I'm going to reach out to Adam and see he would be a great guest for us. Yes. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. So Adam, please reach out to us. And if you know Adam, please tell him to reach out to us. Um, Again, if you are interested in any of more of the stuff that Shannon talked about on our podcast today, um, feel free to go to shannonpolly.com for all those good things and check out uh, Character Strengths Matter. Uh, great book and uh, all the money goes to good stuff. And you can reach us at daretobehumanpodcast.com. You can find us on any of your podcasting software, like us, review us, Tell your friends, be in touch, have a wonderful day, and don't forget to dare to be human. See ya.
Dare to be Human is a production of Cop It. In this podcast, we explore the ways applied improv shows up in the wild. If you've ever wondered how improv could be used in your world, check us out at copit.com.